Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Namo Sadanto Suchedoye Vlahudi San Miao San Putoshe Namo Sadanto Suchedoye Vlahudi San Miao San Putoshe Bushang Shen Shen Wei Miao Bai Chen Wang Chen An Zhao Yu Wo Jin Chen Wan De Shou Chi the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful dharmas in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I have come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra lecture tonight. It's December 3rd, and we're here in Berkeley, California, looking into the Flower Garland Sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutra. So uh, we have a Christmas tree here in the Buddha Hall, and holiday festivities are upon us, like it or not. Mostly like it, right? That's a good thing. So we are going to uh, start by reciting the name of the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas, the name of the Sutra, which you'll find on on the top of here. The front cover of your sutra text.
I've already gone ahead and turned my phone off. Click. Please turn to page 46 and 47 in your text. 46 and 47. We're down at the bottom, bottom paragraph. Pusa Rushi Yen Li Yi Che Yo Wei Rushi Min Nian Yi Che Jong Shang Chi Yi Che Chi Chi Yo Shang Li Yi Yu Yi Ru Lai Chi Hui救度众生做事思维做事思维此诸众生此诸众生坐在烦恼大苦之中大苦之中以喝方便而能把饥令住究竟Okay, this is how the Bodhisattva grows weary of all conditioned things and abandons them. Thus he deepens his empathy for all beings as he recognizes the supreme benefits of omniscience. He resolves to take sentient beings across by means of the Tathagata's wisdom. And he reflects, all these beings suffer greatly from their afflictions. What skillful means will work to release them from their pain and bring them the bliss of ultimate nirvana? All right. So we're in the the ten the ten grounds chapter. This is a long chapter inside a sutra called the Flower Garden, the Flower Adornment Sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutra, called the Huayanjing. Japanese call it the Kegonkyo. This is a, uh, a major sutra in the in the Buddhist world. And it talks about bodhisattvas. It talks about these awakened beings. And our sutra gives us a generic bodhisattva. This, the uh, hero of our story, doesn't have a face, doesn't have a name, doesn't have a history. But the advantage of that is we can put ourselves very easily into the bodhisattva and say, what if I tried that? How do I measure up? What would it be like if I lived this way? So the, uh, the very plain vanilla quality of the, of the hero of the sutra 
um, allows us to imprint our own, project our own uh, potential onto that being. So let's take a step back, and I just wanted to, to kind of look at the process of lecturing on sutras and listening to sutras and say, uh, every now and then I kind of just pinch myself and say, um, how interesting that um, in 1974 I was over there as a graduate student. Just thinking, gee, what should I do? You know, I got a low draft number. Should I go to Canada? Nah, that's not going to work out. What should I do? Should I, should I become a, an entertainer? I was a folk singer at the time. I, yeah, but that's a tough life. You know, you either make it or you don't. And if you don't, you wind up selling yourself. And if you do, it's hard to avoid selling yourself. Should I be a photographer? Because I was also working in a dark room at the time. No, it's a tough life. I don't have that gift. Which, well, I could just follow my path and be a professor. And just, you know, just keep one foot in front of the other and go on and step into the academy. And I thought, yeah, but look at the men and women who do that. And there are wonderful people there, but there are also folks who kind of feel that they, they miss real life by being so analytical, by taking critical methodologies, methodological approaches to knowledge. They somehow miss knowledge. And that's, so that's yeah, that's good, but don't you want to live? What should you do? You know, going around like a squirrel in a cage. And if somebody had said to me at that time, well, just keep walking, and within two years you're going to be sitting in a monastery in the Mission District in San Francisco with your head shaved, wearing a robe, eating one meal a day, and bowing a lot, I would have said, what you been smoking? (laughs) No. (laughs) Not a chance. And sure enough, not only was I doing all those things, but my life had focused around a book. That was the most unexpected. Because as a graduate student, you know, what you do with books is you inhale books. Back when I was, I guess it was high school, speed reading came in. We don't hear about speed reading anymore. If you're a certain age, you remember speed reading, right? And some people took a class in speed reading, and there were schools and and speed reading was designed to allow you to absorb more information, I suppose, in the same amount of time as you did before. And there was techniques of summarizing with your keep your eyes moving, etc. And as a grad student, that was self-defense. You had to speed read because you had a stack of books. I had a stack of books on my table at all times, all open, because I was reading them simultaneously, just going down. And Yet there was no, uh, as, as your speed and reading went up, there was no some commensurate enjoyment line that went up. It wasn't the case that reading faster meant you enjoyed it more or you learned more. Not necessarily at all. It was purely quantity over quality. So, but the point was, I read a lot of books and I read them really fast. And just inhaled, and and words became like popcorn. There was just no more nutrition in the words. No sense of of the book being anything more than 
the material that got you through the test. You know, they were just means. There was no value in the, in the knowledge, much less the wisdom. It was just fast and quick. So that was my experience. And then to find myself in a community where the first, the first practice I adopted after moving into Gold Mountain Monastery and taking the precepts and becoming a monastic was bowing to a book, one character at a time. So, here we are, right? We just read it. Pool. Sa. Ru. Right? You get the idea. Bowing to a book, one character at a time. One word, one full prostration. And uh, sure, one word, like that. It was the exact opposite of what I've been doing. And yet both were relating to books. So what's, what's going on there? Well, at first I rebelled like crazy. This was insane. I had, been, I had a stack of books that I was reading simultaneously. And here I am, bowing to a book. It, one word. It took about 45 seconds per word. And after about three weeks of that, something shifted. And I realized that bowing to this book was different. If I had tried to bow to my uh, linguistics text, my linguistics homework, probably wouldn't have been as rewarding. But when you bow to the Buddha's wisdom, and not only did I put my head down every time, but I actually contemplated each word. I visualized each character, and these characters are very beautiful when you go into them. I put that character in my mind's eye as I bowed. And so I had 45 seconds with every word, in a relationship with every word. And then come back up and kind of let it go and wash it clean, try the next word. What I discovered was deep, immense satisfaction with knowledge. I was absolutely unprepared for the idea that you, if, you're, if you have the right book, in this case, a book that had been on the planet in front of people's eyes for 2,500 years, and I promise you it's hard to find anything else that survives that long at all. You can find anything besides mountains, very few trees, you know, oceans, air, but those are the basics. Anything of human creation that lasts 2,500 years? Not much. So, here is one of those things. And when you put that in your cognitive system, put it in your eyes, put it in your brain, put it on your tongue, put it in your heart, you know, put it in your mouth as you recite it, Things change. And I found myself savoring the sutra like you savor the most delicious food or water when you're thirsty. All of the reading, speed reading of books had left me starving for meaning and connection. But bowing to this book one character at a time fed me. That was totally unexpected.
that there was this sense of nutrition for my wisdom in these words. And as I say, I mean, on the face of it, it's ridiculous. Compared to what I was doing, it's, it's ridic- really ridiculous. Like, what? And if I had tried to explain it to any of my fellow grad students who were on their way to their PhDs, I came out after the MA, they would have been very suspicious. I was almost threatened by this knowledge, this approach to knowledge. You know? So, just to say, here we are on Saturday night giving up... I mean, Saturday night, this is quality evening, right? Because tomorrow's Sunday, you can recover from whatever misadventures you have Saturday night, right? And you don't have to go to work. So it's, this is the night, this is the party night. And, and you all are like here relating to a 2,500-year-old book in English and Chinese, two languages. The Chinese has been in this form for now... Um, the, this is a Tang Dynasty translation, so it's about 1,100 years, 1,200 years. It's been in Chinese. The English is so new that we're doing it up, doing it as we, we translate it and print it, translate it and print it. You know, so it's right on this kind of immediate English translation. But how interesting that that's what we're doing on a Saturday night is opening these texts and looking at them first in Chinese then in English, and as we prepare, we, we use Sanskrit, so we go try to go back to the original if we find it, if it's there, and kind of wring it out, chew on it for a while, walk in it like shoes, digest it like, you know, noodles, and get all the goodness out of it. And it's really satisfying. How strange. Huh? Way better than TV. TV goes too fast. And there's stories to tell and there's images to, to look at for a blink. And then there's the commercial. But this is commercial-free, public domain. This is true public broadcast. This is public wisdom broadcasting. And no government subsidies needed. So, so whether or not NPR gets its cut, we don't really read the, the sutras here all the same. So, just to say, that's what we're doing, to contextualize. We're looking at an ancient book, slowly savoring it, kind of idea by idea. And the, there's something else which I didn't point to, but I think is really important. Part of that experience was the physical yoga. The bowing made it different. There's, bowing is uh, one of a, a practice. It's a, a ritual gesture. And it involves, in our case, putting yourself down onto the cushion in front of you. We don't, we don't start from our knees the way the Theravada tradition does. And we don't do the full prostration the way that the Tibetan tradition does. Ours is called a five-point bow. And it, you wind up with your head, your elbows, and your knees all in the same place and the cushion. But there's something about that slow putting of your head down to the same level as your heart that kind of cleans the palate between ideas. So nobody ever suggested that I bow as I did my homework. But I think if I had, I probably would have learned it a lot faster and it would have lasted longer. Something about that, the yogic movement, the yoking, 
putting your body into a yoke as you go down and stand up. It's really slow aerobics. It, it moves the blood around. It moves your chi around. It kind of washes your brain when you put your head down, you know, with the blood inside. Really. And so you kind of like prepare the, the ground for the next seed. Prepare the garden for the next seed. And every word becomes a seed. So the, the actual doing of this makes a big difference in the retention and the, the depth that you get what you're, st- what you're putting in front of your eyes. So that's a big part of that bowing to a sutra, is the bowing, as much as the sutra. So. Okay, so that's what we're doing. We're hearing a voice. Now, to say 2,500 years, that just means that's when our Buddha first spoke it. But this knowledge, the Avatamsaka Sutra's wisdom, this, this dharma, this kind of body of knowledge, had, you could say is actually timeless, ageless. There's no historical moment when this is first here or going to vanish. As soon as somebody becomes a Buddha, this is what they say first, this text, according to our tradition. The Theravada tradition says differently. But um, So this Bodhisattva image, you could say, is one of the oldest ideas humanity has ever had. Another way to say it, one of the most enduring ideas humanity has ever had is human beings can do this kind of thing. They can be very selfless. Human beings can be really good-hearted, living to serve. So that's that this idea is in the human heart, you know, in our, it's in our collective memory. This is very wholesome for a human species and man we can do we can go the other way far we can be just evil beings but that's not the whole story we can also be kind good beings and this about this is about as good as you can be as a human okay so that's just what i wanted to say to start things out pusa rusher yin li ichi yo wei first idea this is the way our bodhisattva yen gets weary of li and leaves behind iche your way all conditioned things so people who've been listening along know what we're talking about the in this section of our third ground we're in the third ground our bodhisattva has taken a look at the world around him or her and said everything Breaks. Everything breaks. The Bob Dylan song, everything is broken. Right? It's true. If it ain't broken, it's about to break. And comes back together again. That's what he's been looking at. He's been looking around and saying, show me something that lasts, and he can't find it. There's nothing that lasts. Now, what is your response to that? That's, that's what's interesting. Not so much the insight. The insight's good because it's an x-ray view of things. I mean, flowers obviously go quickly. They're kind of a volatile chemical, electro, electrical, electrochemical, carbo, what is it, hydrocarbon 
that goes away quickly. It wilts and goes back. The Bodhisattva has been looking at everything and saying, yeah, everything goes away. Nothing lasts. So, that's one thing. But what does he do next? What is his response to that insight? Is he looks around at people who he is connected to, who he sees the family relationship, and he says, but they don't know that. And it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. So, what to do? Well, his answer is, teach them the Dharma. And you say, okay, so if I learn the Dharma, what then? Well, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's we haven't really talked to that yet. Tonight, he kind, of, he kind of asks that question. What does he say? The Bodhisattva grows weary of all conditioned things and abandons them. Thus, he deepens his empathy for all beings as he recognizes the supreme benefits of omniscience. All right? Unpack that. He, in this way, he feels a connection with, and it's a painful, it's Bill Clinton's, I feel your pain. He says, he, in this way, as we've heard, the rusher means the way we've talked about it for weeks now. Oh, why is my microphone skipping a beat here? So, in this way, if anybody's keeping track, it will be retrograde Mercury until the 13th of this month. Nobody's keeping track? Fine, we don't do astrology here. You all know that, right? right. Say it again. We don't do astrology. Retrograde Mercury till the 13th. So, uh, now it's not. So, the Bodhisattva looks at living beings and says, Oh my goodness, it's going to hurt. And I feel it. So, his next thought is, There is a way. There is an answer. It's not the case that everything breaks up and we just panic or get depressed or quit or run away. What does he do? He says, the answer is in the Dharma. The answer is in wisdom. Now, this is a fancy wisdom. What is it? Jir Iche. He knows, he recognizes, Iche Jir Jir. All wisdom, wisdom. In Chinese, you see there? Iche is all, zhi, zhi, the wisdom of omniscience. So, what is omniscience? Omniscience is a very neat 50 cent word. Omniscience. Science, you could say, is knowledge or method. Science is the, the, the list, the looking. Science wants to know what is it. What does science do? Science says, what is it? That's musical. That's not. Science goes, what? What? What is that? Let's find out. Let's measure. Let's investigate. So science is that process of inquiring minds need to know. What is it? That's science's question. What is it? So he... Omniscience means omni is universal, everywhere, entire, 
science. So omniscience is knowledge of everything. Getting information about everything. And what kind of omniscience is it? It's the wisdom of every wisdom. This is the wisdom of wisdoms. In, in our early translation days, we used to call this the wisdom of all modes, or the wisdom of all wisdoms. So in other words, among wisdoms, there's, other, there's better wisdom than some wisdom. There's wisdom and then there's better wisdom. So here's, let me give you a, a breakdown. Um, Shifu, Master Shenhua, our founder, used to say, don't call it Buddhism, call it the teaching of wisdom. Because why? If you say Buddhism, anybody who has another religion is going to say, I ain't that. I'm something else. I'm something other ism. I, am, I have my own religion, thank you very much. Don't need yours. Draw a line. You're other. You're different. If you say we are the teaching, we study wisdom, nobody's opposed to that. Wisdom? Oh yeah, so do we. That's interesting. You know, and that line doesn't get drawn. So, as an expedient means, he said, change the name of Buddhism in this country. We don't need yet one more religion to go wrong. But if you say we, we study wisdom, oh, okay. So, Buddhism is definitely the teaching of wisdom. What kind of wisdoms are there? You can divide it into ten. You can divide it into three. There are groups of seven wisdoms, etc. The three is a very interesting division, which is what? The first kind of wisdom is called wanzibura. Literary prajna wisdom. What is literary prajna? P-R-A-G-N-A. And a tilde over the end. Prajna. So literary prajna wisdom means what? Wanzi. You know the names. You've got all the names. Wanzi. You've, you've read a lot. You can name... Any situation, something comes up, you go, oh, this is a case of that. If you're a lawyer, you say, oh, there's a precedent. It's Ames versus the state of Iowa. Right? You know. That's the decision that was, re- that was reached regarding the issue of McDonald's putting beef fat in French fries in India. And creating a riot, right? You heard about that one? That was very funny. You don't understand that there's often beef tallow in your fries, you vegetarians. McDonald's fries often come, they don't tell you what kind of grease it is. So they did that in India, and some, in India, if vegetarian issues are not fun, it's not a joke. And if you discover that you've been eating non-vegetarian french fries, they, they rioted, people rioted to discover it. And so McDonald's had to come clean and admit what they were putting in there, French fries, what kind of oil they were frying them in. So there was a legal precedent set, and McDonald's had to toe the line. And you don't mess with McDonald's. They, they have the economy of medium-sized nations. You know, If, if McDonald's changes its potato supplier... You know, thousands of people go out of work and things. So, 
Anyway, so that's the kind of president. Literary prajna knows those stories. You've heard a lot of stories. So that includes who? Grandpa on the back porch, which is what I always understood wisdom was, you know, in the rocking chair. Well, my bones are aching. I think we better plant our corn early this spring, you know. Oh, thanks, Grandpa. You know, Grandpa's wisdom, Grandma's wisdom. The wisdom of the tribe, that's literary prajna, hearing the stories. What's the second kind of wisdom? The second kind of wisdom is called guanjiao boro, contemplative wisdom. Contemplative wisdom. And contemplative wisdom involves the body. Now, you sit still. And bit by bit, the let's, let's look at it this way. Uh, literary prajna gets the knowledge, hears the stories, and chops them into ever finer pieces. You're good at analysis with literary prajna. You can divide it up into tiny chunks and reductionism. You can go from the small back to the big because you've got all the names. You've heard so much music. You've, you've got an encyclopedic knowledge of when that side was cut and who was the side man and uh, what were their influences. When you get to contemplative prajna, the second kind of wisdom, you begin to reverse that process. And instead of cutting into smaller pieces, you're integrating back into a stillness. And the knowledge comes not from comparing smaller and smaller bits, but from reflecting on bigger and bigger principles. It doesn't negate the clarity on the little pieces, but it functions in a whole new way. Because why? You're still, you're quiet. It involves the body. To have that second level of wisdom, guanjiao boro, contemplative wisdom, you have to actually sit still. And when you sit still, that's the second step, that's the, the samadhi step. The first step is the virtue step. You have to really make your life pretty virtuous and kind. Because if you want to be still and be able to reflect on things around you and your mind, you can't go around killing, stealing, lusting, lying, and drugging yourself. Because that, when you sit, your mind's going to be like that. So the stillness implies goodness as well. So in other words, that kind of wisdom has an ethical basis. Who you are as a person determines how still the mirror is when you start reflecting on principles around you. So somebody who has this contemplative prajna, you may you might not you can't tell any difference by looking at him. There's not grandpa on the porch and the rocker. But when the time comes, they make the connection. They, oh, they can go from root to branch and from branch tip back to the root. You lift up one, they know five. Right? You show them five, they can show you the one. That's contemplative prajna because they're reflecting instead of cutting up, instead of discriminating. Okay, third one, shi xiang ultimate prajna. Literally, genuine characteristic, real mark, prajna. What that is, that's the Buddha's wisdom. 
at that point, the self is gone. And all of your cognitive processes function, they say, like a great perfect mirror. Da yuan jing zhi. The wisdom that is a great perfect mirror. And that's this, that kind of wisdom only comes from mm, erasing all the traces that keep me different from the world around me, which are false to begin with. But we got them. When you work on that small self and erase those differences, then that ultimate prajna, ultimate reality prajna, reflects. And that is the wisdom that connects with great compassion. So great wisdom and great compassion are one and the same at that third level of prajna. So, literary prajna, contemplative prajna, and then there's ultimate real mark, ultimate reality prajna. And that's, you know, we read about that in the sutras, but it's, you're hard-pressed to find anybody who can tell you what that's like. Even contemplative prajna is, is rare because most people can't sit still long enough. But those are the three. What is this? This is the wisdom of all wisdoms. In other words, third kind. This is the wisdom of the Buddha. So, he says, he knows that all wisdom, yo, sheng, li, yi. This wisdom has sublime benefits. This wisdom brings lots of good stuff with it. Great compassion being one. If you have that kind of perfect mirror wisdom, then one advantage is you are never, ever alone. You can be alone, but you're never, ever lonely. Why? Because you see the connections. You know the deeper connection. So you think, sometimes you look at your mom's face, and you think, did I come from her? You know, People will look at you and say, you have her eyes. Yeah, but what about my nose? You know, where did that come from? You know, you have her, her ears. I had an experience uh, just this morning. Somebody sent me a link to a, a Scottish singer, and she is a YouTube clips. This is a, a woman who sings in Scots Gaelic. She rarely sings in English. She's grew up in Scotland, of course she speaks English, but she sings in Scots Gaelic. It's the strangest language. Beautiful, but it's, there's 1% of the Scottish people in the world speak it. 60,000 people speak this language. It's nearly gone. If nobody studies it in a, two generations, nobody will know it anymore. Anyway, she lives on an island off the northern coast of Scotland. Tiny island beyond the Hebrides, way up north. So it's halfway to Norway, right, from Scotland. So so she's singing, and I'm, I'm hearing this music, and something in my, my cells is going... Pay attention to this. And I'm looking at the YouTube video. The BBC did a, a documentary on her because she's such a uh, true, authentic singer. And here they are in this pub in Scotland, and all the people around... This woman sitting there listening to her sing looked like me. Like, I'm looking from face to face, and I'm thinking, if I had my hair back and my mustache, it was like, there I am, sitting on that bench. Pint of Guinness in my hand. And it's like, 
those are those, that's those are my family, you know. And it was such a shockeroo because I was looking in the mirror at these people who were in northern Scotland in the Highlands, singing Bikrushkidranisa Ufladisa. You know, what's that? That's Scots Gaelic. You know, okay. How strange to look and see. Yeah, yeah. If you have this kind of wisdom, you see that everywhere. There's nowhere you go where you don't see the connection. Regardless of skin color, regardless of, of economic status, regardless of education or occupation, you see the connection. Not just with humans, but you start to see the connection with all life forms. Because why? There's no difference. The differences are the leaves on the tree. The samenesses are the branches, trunk, and roots of the tree and all the trees that drink from the same groundwater. It's not just we're the same tree, we're the same trees. Vegetation is the same, you know, on and on. So once the self, which is such an incredible limiter, is gone, you see that, what did Fabrizio, anybody who took the yoga class at Buddha Root Farm this summer, Fabrizio, our, our yoga teacher, was... He has a very he has a skillful way with cosmic statements. Fab can make cosmic statements really well. He said things I won't be able to get it quite right, but he said uh, he said with every breath you are exhaling six trillion carbon particles, which are um, he said every fourth breath you are breathing in carbon particles that were part of your body in past lives. You know, and, and the carbon in the air that you're exhaling will nourish the farthest star and your great 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 grandchild, you know, because it's the same. We're all stardust. You're like, oh, you know, that's really great. I feel so cosmic. He can do that. He really has that song. Anyway, um, you realize there's no difference. Like, what? Sh- show me something in you that is different from whales. Can't find it. Show me something in you that's different from amoeba. Well, my hair, I don't have any hair, but, but it, amoebas genetically, you know, they're the same. 98.9% the same. So you look at that and you go, wow, I really have to stop eating things because those are my, I'm eating my, my family. You know, anyway, but we don't go there, but... The, that kind of awareness is what happens when the, the me is gone. All right. Now, here's the thing. If we stop there, we could be guilty of sounding very, you know, beautifully uh, analyzed back to nothing. But we don't live there. We don't live there. And that's the next sentence. The Bodhisattva takes us to that place of utter serenity where everyone is the same. And he brings it right back to the street. What does he say? He says, omniscience helps a lot because it, it explodes all the differences. When you have this view of omniscience, you see that there's no difference between me, you, and the farthest star, and the tiniest 
bacteria. That's nice. But what about pain? Isn't the Buddha Dharma supposed to be about suffering, suffering, suffering all the time, 24-7? It's all suffering all the time. Well, that's not what wisdom tells you. Wisdom tells you there's, it's like, what is really there that hurts? Something you can't let go of is what hurts. Okay, well, that's nice, but what about Occupy Oakland? You know, that's the next sentence. He says, he resolves to take sentient beings across by means of the Tathagata's wisdom, and he reflects, all these beings suffer greatly from their afflictions. What skillful means will work to release them from their pain and bring them the bliss of ultimate nirvana? In other words, as soon as the Bodhisattva, this awakened being, understands enough to set herself free, on that turning of that thought, she reinvests immediately in everyone else around her. Right? That's one of the beauties of this text, is the Bodhisattva at no point cashes in this wisdom and says, Ha! Finally, I'm free of that affliction that I used to feel. I'm not going to have any more headaches. Ha ha. No more migraines. Ha ha. No more Tylenol. No more Midol. No more trouble. I'm free. Right? Finally. Right? The Bodhisattva doesn't take this wisdom as an opportunity to quit, but immediately plugs it right back in and says... That's good, but everybody else is hurting. What can I do? What can I do? What's going to work? Give me a tool. Tell me the magic words that's going to make people hurt less. Because why? Because we're connected. Their pain is my pain. It's no different. Because once you remove those barriers of the small self that make me think I'm separate and different, what happens? Everything that's going on is going on with me. Not so much fun. You know, at least when I still thought my skin was my barrier, I thought this is as far as I went. Then once I stopped hurting, it didn't hurt. Well, as soon as you get rid of that, suddenly all the pain is yours. The Bodhisattva does not quit at that point doesn't go back to the Tylenol. Says, okay, so it's going to take a little longer than I thought. No problem. What's going to work? What expedient means? What technique is going to work to get me, to get people to recognize what, what I've just seen, which is that everything falls apart. As long as I try to grab it and keep it from falling apart, it's going to hurt. What do I do? says the Bodhisattva. So, at this point, this becomes heroic. Right? This is where the sutra shows us this incredible optimism, first of all. How optimistic is the Bodhisattva? It says, I'm going to find a way. I'm going to find a way to cross people over, take them past their suffering. That's not a question. The question now is, how am I going to do it? What method am I going to use? He says, I'm going to use the Tathagata's wisdom. Okay, 
Let's take a look at it word by word. All right. He says, I'm on line two of that paragraph, halfway across. Desiring to rely on Tathagata's wisdom. To save and take across sentient beings. He thinks, she thinks. Takes us right into the heart of the Bodhisattva, where the Bodhisattva thinks. These living beings have fallen into the big pain of afflictions. Afflictions means troubles, miseries, the blues, the everything that, that hassles, hurts, upsets, that's all called affliction. So living beings are fallen into big trouble, big pain, affliction and big pain. What skillful method can I use to pull them out? So that they stay in the opposite of of pain. So they stay in the bliss of ultimate nirvana. That's his challenge. So what what's going to work? For the last couple of weeks, I've been working at my computer, intensely um, struggling with with words. I've been co-authoring an article. This article is on uh, introduction to Buddhism for college students, and I'm co-authoring it with a professor from University of Toledo who was a Catholic priest for years. He he got married two years ago. He writes very well about Buddhism, and and, uh, we're, we're both writing this chapter. So he writes as the outsider, I'm writing as the insider. And that's kind of the way the textbook is set up. They're looking at Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism, and Buddhism in this way, from the outsider and the insider. And being cast as the insider gives me a lot of license to kind of take pot shots at his writing. I can be really cranky and, and uh, to show where this is a... Uh, let's say, an uh, inaccurate description of parts of the Dharma. And nirvana is one of those places that we mostly get it wrong. Karma is another one. Um, these basic words, we, we assume we understand. And I do too, you know. And the difference is I can look back and chart the, the time when my teacher mostly uh, improved my understanding, kind of corrected my understanding. Um, so I get to pass that on. So what is nirvana, and why did uh, Professor Feldmeier get it wrong? He, he uh, wrote about, he said the Buddha didn't really ever understand nirvana, he said. So 
interesting. Um, once you actually realize nirvana, there's no understander and nothing more to understand. You know, there's, there's nothing there that understands or misunderstands. Nirvana is the end of ignorance. Nirvana basically means affliction doesn't happen anymore. So what is affliction? Well, pain for one, greed for another, anger for another, delusion for another, seeing things the way they're not, believing that things are so when they're not, clearly. That's all affliction. Pride is an affliction. Doubt is an affliction. And all those things depend upon a me and a mine. All those afflictions depend upon me inside and the world outside. Duality, basically. Where does that duality live? It lives in this notion that this is me, that I stop here. And everything else is outside my skin. So, as soon as that happens, then pretty soon I'm going to want stuff. And once you get the stuff you want, you tend to hang on to that stuff. And once that stuff you're hanging on to goes bad, then there's trouble. Or suppose you want something and you don't get it, then there's trouble. Right? That's all affliction, based on me and mine. So, what the Buddha has done is he has progressively looked at that and reduced the, the, the wanting of stuff and been patient when the self that does the wanting kind of, I really do want that, give it to me now. You know, and that kind of goes away bit by bit by bit by bit. And you think, well, actually, you know, the stuff that comes to me has always been just about right. And I'm grateful for it. Not only do I not want yours, but the stuff I have is wonderful. I want to start giving, giving some of the stuff that I have. You flip it around, and every time you give away that I want, there's less I. And you do that for a long time, and pretty soon you give away all the difference between you and the way things are. And you start to see things through the Dharma lens. Pretty soon, afflictions quit. That's nirvana. It is not extinction. For years, the first early translators, when they read the word nirvana, translated it as extinction. Right? The Buddha realized extinction. Well, he didn't. He didn't go extinct like dinosaurs. The Buddha you know, didn't go any after nirvana. He was still right there, still eating, still drinking, still talking, still meditating. So nirvana is the ending of afflictions that happens when the self is given away, seen through. So what a, that's really different. So nirvana becomes really dynamic. It's not extinction. It's not uh, death. You know, it's not an end of anything except the former troubles that you used that I used to have as soon as the me didn't get what I wanted, basically. So that's, that's the idea of nirvana. So I, I wrote some, some cutting, nasty remarks to Professor Feldmeier. And, no, I didn't. I was actually very polite. 
and suggested that we could look at that again. But that's my job as the insider, right? So he had a whole bunch of things that he got really right. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting. And I'll, if I can, I'll make that chapter available once, once it goes through all the editing process. So he says, how can I take these living beings who are stuck in the midst of all kinds of affliction and bring them to a place where it doesn't hurt anymore, really. It doesn't hurt anymore. Um, what I've been hearing, notice that this week, after, it's funny, after Thanksgiving, the Occupy news really got moved off of page one. And uh, we're in kind of Occupy 2.0 right now. And uh, we're, I don't, we're not going to talk politics, but we are going to talk waking up. And there's a whole bunch of waking up that's going on in Occupy sites around the world. And people, all of the uh, snarky uh, commentators say, ah, wait till the snow falls. Ah, wait till the rain comes. Wait till it gets cold. We'll see that. Blow away. Not for sure. Uh, and maybe the tents will move elsewhere. But so many people who took part in a day, an hour of the Occupy movement got things they didn't expect. Because why? There's an alternative mentality happening in the Occupy sites. For example, in Chicago, um, what they discovered is um, lots and lots and lots of homeless folks, lots and lots and lots of vets on the street, and people who were very, very needy, who had been completely lonely, wound up in the Occupy sites. And so the folks who were there for being the 99% suddenly found themselves giving social service to people who were very, very needy, who came around because suddenly, here, instead of being in your, behind your door in suburbia, or if you lost your home, you know, suddenly... A lot of people were in the streets. And the folks who were invisible and pushed from agency to agency or from bridge to bridge suddenly showed up saying, got any food? You know? And the people who were there for newly there as part of an Occupy movement suddenly said, yeah, uh, we have some food. What can we give you? And they suddenly found themselves doing you know, social work and getting all of the joy that comes from giving and finding community and sharing. So I say there's, that's why it's not going to go away because there's, there's this whole new awareness of the liberation that comes from giving away yourself. How interesting. How interesting. I don't know if anybody saw The Wire, uh, that series of uh, TV drama, but there was one uh, segment of The Wire one year where it focused on um, 
uh, politics on City Hall. And the, it's basically about drugs in the city. And an innovative police captain took all of the corners in Baltimore where the drug action was happening and put it in a, an abandoned house neighborhood where all the houses were just boarded up and abandoned. He moved all the hoppers and the dealers and the users into one corner and said, if you stay over there and leave these neighborhoods alone, we're not going to bother you. And he did this under the radar. And the higher-ups and the police and, and City Hall didn't know for about a month that all of the, the drug scene was quote, legalized, basically just ignored. And they let the folks buy and sell and use without being hassled by the police or busted for a while. Now, why introduce that? This is, mind you, it's a fiction, right? But it's, it was based on an actual incident where a police major, is a major, I guess, in order to stop just busting heads when there was a public health issue, put all of the drug scene in one corner of the city. What happened was all the social service agencies who wanted to find out about these populations and offer uh, medicine and psychiatric help and do studies, they all came down and started to actually help people who were sick. And the, so the, the social service communities integrated in this scene completely under the radar without the authorities knowing about this until they found out and then they just busted it up. But there were these episodes where the university researchers were going down and saying, we have never had an opportunity to test and to offer, you know, clean towels and sanitation to these people who have been sick invisibly in our city all this time. Now we can actually serve them because they're, they're there not being beaten, not shooting each other as they fight for, for corners. And that phenomenon is happening in tent cities all around the country. People are not going to go back after having this experience. So how fascinating that here, you know, given necessity and given people's kindness and opportunity to share, look what's coming out, is the Occupy folks who are there for a variety of reasons are suddenly becoming, they're suddenly being presented with an opportunity to practice generosity and patience and become givers of goodness and it's totally unexpected you know and it's not dirty hippie get a job the way one phase of our populace is reacting to it it's not that at all Um, so we're seeing you know if you're paying attention we're seeing this opportunity for the bodhisattvas impulse to come forward to benefit in unexpected ways Um, what will happen 
it's whatever happens is going to determine the future of our country, certainly. Um, we're not going back. And it's that the kindness is coming out of people instead of, uh, well, that didn't work, we're going to get angry and go break windows instead. <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know, we'll see. Let's see. It all could vanish overnight, but we don't, you know, that's, if I talk about it more, it's going to sound like a sermon, either that or a political stump speech, and I don't want to do that. Monks can't be labeled one party or the other, but to say that this is a cultural phenomenon that is seeing, allowing people to open their hearts to some of this ancient wisdom, okay, okay, that's different. That's when, when people are given a chance to help somebody else in pain, it gets really real. What do you do? Do you give or do you say, no, no, I'm sorry, this is my lunch, you can't eat it? No, you say, well, we need some bandages over here, we need more food, we need some toilet paper over here, we need you know, a tent here. What are we going to do? This is very interesting. And the sutra becomes relevant right away. What does the Bodhisattva say? He says, look, these beings are suffering greatly from their afflictions. They're in this big pain. What skillful means will work to release them from their pain and bring them to a very different place where afflictions no longer run? They don't get greedy. They don't get angry. They don't stay deluded because they see the bigger picture. They see the connections. And from their eyes, they're no longer monad units, little independent units struggling for their piece of the pie. Right? They're different now because they are connected to something much, much, much bigger than just me and mine. How interesting, right? This is, this is powerful stuff. Okay. Now, um, we, we have, if you want to turn over, please, with me to page 48 and 49. 48 and 49. We're coming up to a section that is, um, I, mentioned, I kind of previewed it last week. This is a formula. And uh, when you see a formula like this in the text, it's... You pay attention because there's, when you get it on the language level, that's just this first step. You then have to, to take it into the meaning level, and then you take it into the practice level. Because all of these principles in our sutra come from somebody's meditation. These are not theories. This is not, the Buddha was not saying, mm, I think this is how it might be, you know posing a construct, not. This comes from his seeing how things are based on the stillness and the purity of his mind and body. All right, so here's a pattern. Let's, let's see if we can get it on the, on the language level first and then, then go from there. This is gonna, we're going to be spending a little bit of time with this to see if we can get the, get the gist of it. Okay, I'm going to read the Chinese and you can follow along if you like, right at the top of page 48. 便作十年,欲度众生,令住涅盘,不离无障碍解脱智。Okay, 
不离一切法如实觉，一切法如实觉，不离无恨无生恨慧光，无恨无生恨慧光，不离禅善巧决定观察智。禅善巧决定观察智，不离善巧多闻。Then he thinks the wish to take beings to nirvana is related to the unobstructed wisdom of liberation. Unobstructed wisdom of liberation is related to awakening to the reality of dharmas. Awakening to the reality of dharmas is related to the light of wisdom. From cessation of action and creation, the light of wisdom from cessation of action and creation is related to investigation through the wisdom of clever, decisive contemplation. Investigation through the wisdom of clever, decisive contemplation is related to skillful learning. All right, you see the pattern. Clearly, there's a pattern of something going because there's repeating. Right? He says there's this. And it's related to that. That, however, is related to this. So A is related to B. B is related to C. C is related to D. So we trace it back. You go. You want to get to D. You got to go through C, B, A. We do. We want to do that. So we're gonna. There's this link, 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 link. You could almost want to chart or graph, graph this out. All right. What is he after? He wants to know what's going to work. What's going to work? To get people to end suffering, that's what he wants to know. So here's what the Bodhisattva is figured out. Okay, this is his method. He says, the wish to take beings to nirvana, which I have, I want to do that, is related to the wu zhang ai jie tuo zhi. All right, that's the first thing we got to look at. What is wu zhang ai jie tuo zhi? Unobstructed wisdom of liberation. All right. So, it's wisdom. It's liberation wisdom. In other words, wisdom that sets you free. And it's unobstructed wisdom that sets you free. That's what this is. So there's three ideas together. It's wisdom. It's liberated wisdom, or the wisdom of liberation, and it's got no obstacles to it. So what would that be? What is that? What is that? Okay, so let's say I just thought of two examples that I'm not going to bring out because that would definitely cause trouble.、Uh, an example would be, okay, let's say you are a gambler. Let's say you're a gambler, and maybe you have some. Maybe you are a gambler. Maybe you have somebody in your family who gambles, or maybe you have you no know, stories. Somebody who gambles. Gambling is a disease. It's a disease as much as heroin addiction. That is to say, if you have that disease, you are not in control. Given the opportunity, you you go. You given the means, something in your pocket. It's that whatever that is just gets hot in your pocket. That check, that card, that cash—it's like 
you just, in your, your mind, you know, you, your eye goes to the standings, to the ratings. Your eye goes to the ticker, you know, checking out the odds. Okay, if you are a gambler and you say, I don't want to gamble anymore. I've learned my lesson. I've kicked it. I don't do that now. It hurts my family. It gave me infinite pain when I had to pay back those debts. It caused me to lose face with people. And most important, it gave me low self-esteem. I felt bad about myself when I realized I was not in control. I kicked it. I stopped that. So what is that? That's the wisdom of liberation. You remember how it felt when you hit the rocks and you said, I'm going to go free. I don't do that anymore. Hallelujah. Set me free. You remember. So that's the wisdom of liberation. Guess what happens? You get a check in the mail from great aunt Lucy who died and left you a thousand dollars. There it is. Money order, right? This cash instrument is reclaimable at any bank. You know. Just go down to the local Wells Fargo and you got a thousand dollars in your hands. And you're now enabled. Aunt Lucy becomes your codependent, your enabler, right? And what do you do? You look at that and you say, my hand is on fire. And you take that money and you pass it on. Sorry about that. That, that, was, that was not a dramatic effect. <laughs> Didn't mean that. I was reaching to scratch my cheek. Bummer. Okay. So, you take that money and you feed people with it. You take that money and you fix the porch of Grandpa's house that was needing to be fixed for a year. Right? You take that money and you buy new tires and a, repair your transmission. You're back on the road, right? And you don't gamble. And you feel every step you take getting rid of that money so fast, you feel lighter and lighter and lighter. And you go, free at last, free at last, Lord Almighty, free at last. Unobstructed, liberated wisdom. Right? The means came and they didn't obstruct you. Because why? You've actually changed. You have learned your lesson. So that's unobstructed wisdom of liberation. The means arrived and they did not enable you. You took charge and you empowered yourself to kick it. And that gambling ghost, right? And the Chinese talk about them as ghosts. The gambling ghost. Just went, well, I guess I gotta move on. Bye. I'll miss you. So, unobstructed wisdom and liberation. Yeah, free. Free of that one. We learned. 
The wish to take beings to nirvana is related to the unobstructed wisdom of liberation. You need the wisdom that sets them free so that they don't fall back into our habits, right? Unobstructed wisdom. Because why? If you get that, when they realize nirvana, they're, they're safe. One, one fewer living being, one, one more Buddha. They've been in nirvana. The unobstructed wisdom of liberation, where does that come from? It's related to... The Chinese, it doesn't say related to, it says bu li. It's not, not away from, not apart from, not separate from. So I said it's related to, said it positively instead of negative. Bu li means not, not different from. So that thing we just described, the unobstructed wisdom of liberation is related to yi chie fa ru shi jue, an awakening to the nature of, an awakening to the reality of phenomena. So the things around you, the world. Phenomena, yi chie fa, just means everything that you can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, or think about. In other words, all the things that your senses touch, that's phenomena, right? Everything in your world. So, what is shirjia? Awakening to the reality of those things. What is the reality of those things? Well, they come apart. It's one. Two, they're not you. So, the, all things are not self. I am not frightened. I, the fear rises. There's a difference between the fear and the me that senses it. I am not a loser. That's all a judgment. That's all relative. What in you is the loser? Can't find it, right? I am not a millionaire. No, you're not. You're a person whose conditions have enabled this material to be temporarily in your account. When you're dead, are you a millionaire? No. So what about now? No. So what is the reality of all dharmas? You relate, you awaken to them, and you say, no, they are made of conditions, they are not self, and they're temporary. They, they don't stop. They come and go in an instant. So these, that's the nature of all dharmas. When you wake up to that, what do you do? Why gamble? When I gamble, what am I feeding some ghost who's in there making me think that I'll be happy if I, Lady Luck pays a call. Lady Luck is fickle. She's with you. She comes and goes in the night. You know, she didn't even stick around. You know, she didn't go home with you. Lady Luck did not go home with you. She came with you. She didn't go home. With you. Right? So it's like that's fickle. Nature of. All dharmas, the reality of all dharmas is, what do you think you're, you know, oh, I wanted sevens and I got snake eyes. So it's like, no. That's the reality. So you wake up to that and guess what? You don't want to gamble. So, unobstructed wisdom of liberation. You look at things as they are and you say, no, that's not what I thought they were. The surface was really sweet. The inside was really nothing. 
couldn't find it. It just vanished in front of my eyes. That's the reality of all dharmas. You wake up to that and you can let it go because you see it the way it is. Fame, fame doesn't last. Man, you check the Grammy winners. The Grammy winners were announced this last week. The, the nom- not the winners, the nominees. And you look at those nominees. There's 70, uh, 78 categories of Grammy Award. This is an organization that says your recorded music was the best this year. And you look at those, you think, oh, come on. You know, those are the very, very few independent musicians, mostly the ones the big labels push. Get to the Grammys. Not to say it's rigged, but it's like uh, somebody takes home six Grammys and this, these deserving, outstanding musicians don't even get the invitation, you know. So you think, okay, fame is really fleeting. How funny. Why invest in fame? If you see dharmas as they are, you say, what part of me got nominated for the Grammy? And then from those nominees, a few win. You know, but year after year, the Grammys are so unsatisfying. I don't know, maybe you don't disagree, but it's like... But you look at the Grammy winners, and like, is that the best? Come on. Anyway, so um, we're halfway through our formula. Our time is up. But um, this formula is fascinating because why? This is how the Bodhisattva is going to do what he said he wanted to do help people get past their pain. This is his method. What method is going to work to get them not only past their pain but all the way to nirvana? That's a big job. And this is the method. And he's given us this very interesting, you know, there's this, but it's related to this. And that is related to that. And that is related to that. So what do we, what do we get at the end? What's his final method? You'll have to come back next week to find out. So tune in next week when we discover the Bodhisattva's method. Really, really, this is it. And it's not what you think. It's not what you think. So, if you want to take us, everybody's quickly reading. Well, I'm going to find out what it is. <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> so I'm going to tease you and not tell you until next week. But, as I said at the start, these texts have been around since before time. Right? We say 2,500 years when our historical Buddha spoke these texts in a different, in different body, but that was who spoke them. Where did he get them? He got them from his wisdom, not from revelation like the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai from God to Moses, different. They came from inside, from his wisdom. They were from realization, not revelation. And... Every Buddha who ever wakes up gets the same text from the same place. So it's kind of like this sutra is coded inside each one of our minds. And as soon as we get quiet enough to go deep enough to get in there, the Avatamsaka Sutra is waiting to be spoken. Now what does that mean? That means this text is timeless and ageless. There is no time when this sutra is not around somewhere. 
So these ideas are some of the oldest ideas that humans can think. That's neat. I mean, that, that gets me. These are some of the oldest ideas that in the human mind. And what are they? They're good. They radiate goodness. They're not sharp. They're not smart. They're not profitable. They're good instead. They appeal to our intelligence because it's nice to see something work, to see something ultimately reliable, but they're good. It's the goodness of these ideas that keeps them going. So you could say human mind's default position is to goodness. We're, we're good at the start, although to be strictly right with the Dharma, you say it's not even goodness. It's, it's beyond that. It's the source that gives rise to all goodness and evil, too. But in this case, the Bodhisattva's takeoff point is connection and kindness. He or she wants to help because they see that they're connected and if it hurts you, it hurts them, too. That's neat. That's one of humanity's oldest thoughts. I like it. Shall we transfer the merit and... uh, sutra, you can find it there too. So the way this works is you make a wish. You send out the goodness of connecting with this timeless text and you send it out any way you want. You can think, where did your ancestors come from? Like I was describing this amazing vision of having these folks in the highlands of Scotland look like me in the mirror. Uh, finding a connection with my Scottish roots. And where did your parents come from? Where did their parents come from? Trace it back and use that as the vehicle for your transference. I'm going to sneeze. Excuse me. <coughs> I've learned not to sneeze into the microphone. Fill those things. Saving people. Good. So, use uh, your deeper connection. Do your parents come from Taiwan? Where did they come from before Taiwan? Do your parents come from... Mexico? Where did they come from before Mexico? Maybe they were... You know, the corn comes from Mexico. I was watching a video on a new... Actually, it was, it was a radio broadcast about researching corn in Mexico, ways to make it go further. That's the place it came from. So use that as your transference. Do your parents come from Northern Europe? Their parents came from somewhere, and that flesh and blood is a way to 
start our transference, and then send it out as far as your mind can go. With a wish, may all beings who receive this transference leave their suffering. Realize the unobstructed wisdom of liberation. What a great idea. Hey.